Chapter Twenty Four, Part Eight of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Four, The Hundred Years' War, Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc. 1422-1462, Part Eight. The peace of Arras brought back to the service of France and her king the constable de Richemont, Arthur of Brittany, whom the jealousy of George de la Tremoille and the distrustful indolence of Charles the Seventh had so long kept out of it. By a somewhat rare privilege, he was in reality, there is reason to suppose, superior to the name he has left behind him in history, and it is only justice to reproduce here the portrait given of him, by one of his contemporaries who observed him closely, and knew him well. Never a man of his time, says William Gruet, loved justice more than he, or took more pains to do it according to his ability. Never was prince more humble, more charitable, more compassionate, more liberal, less avarice, or more open-handed in a good fashion and without prodigality. He was a proper man, chaste and brave as prince can be, and there was none of his time of better conduct than he in conducting a great battle, or a great siege, and all sorts of approaches in all sorts of ways. Every day, once at least in the four-and-twenty hours, his conversation was of war, and he took more pleasure in it than in aught else. Above all things he loved men of valour and good renown, and he more than any other loved and supported the people, and freely did good to poor mendicants and others of God's poor. Nearly all the deeds of de Richemont, from the time that he became powerful again, confirm the truth of this portrait. His first thought and his first labor were to restore Paris to France and to the king. The unhappy city in subjection to the English was the very image of devastation and ruin. The wolves prowled around it by night, and there were in it, says an eyewitness, twenty-four thousand houses empty. The Duke of Bedford, in order to get rid of these public tokens of misery, attempted to supply the Parisians with bread and amusements, panem et circenses, but their very diversions were ghastly and melancholy. In 1425 there was painted in the sepulchre of the innocents a picture called the Dance of Death. Death, grinning with fleshless jaws, was represented taking by the hand all estates of the population in their turn, and making them dance. In the Hotel Armagnac, confiscated, as so many others were, from its owner, a show was exhibited to amuse the people. Four blind men, armed with staves, were shut up with a pig in a little paddock. They had to see whether they could kill the said pig, and when they thought they were belaboring it most, they were belaboring one another. The constable resolved to put a stop to this deplorable state of things in the capital of France. In April 1433, when he had just ordered for himself apartments at Saint-Denis, he heard that the English had just got in there and plundered the church. He at once gave orders to march. The Burgundians, who made up nearly all his troop, demanded their pay, and would not mount. Richemont gave them his bond, and the march was begun to Saint-Denis. "'You know the country?' said the constable to Marshal Il Adam. "'Yes, my lord,' answered the other, "'and by my faith, in the position held by the English, you would do nothing to harm or annoy them, though you had ten thousand fighting men.' "'Ah, but we will,' replied Richemont. "'God will help us. "'Keep pressing forward to support the skirmishers.' "'And he occupied Saint-Denis and drove out the English. "'The population of Paris, being informed of this success, "'were greatly moved and encouraged. 
one brave burgess of paris michel lallier master of the exchequer notified to the constable it is said that they were ready and quite able to open one of the gates to him provided that an engagement were entered into in the king's name for a general amnesty and the prevention of all disorder the constable on the king's behalf entered into the required engagement and presented himself the next day the thirteenth of april with a picked force before the saint michel gate the enterprise was discovered a man posted on the wall made signs to them with his hat crying out go to the other gate there is no opening this work is going on for you in the market quarter the picked force followed the course of the ramparts up to the st jacques gate who goes there demanded some burghers who had the guard of it some of the constable's people he himself came up on his big charger with satisfaction and courtesy in his mien some little time was required for opening the gate a long ladder was let down and marshal il adam was the first to mount and planted on the wall the standard of france the fastenings of the drawbridge were burst and when it was let down the constable made his entry on horseback riding calmly down st jacques street in the midst of a joyous and comforted crowd my good friends he said to them the good king charles and i on his behalf do thank you a hundred thousand times for yielding up to him so quietly the chief city of his kingdom if there be amongst you of whatsoever condition he may be who hath offended against my lord the king all is forgiven in the case both of the absent and the present then he caused it to be proclaimed by sound of trumpet throughout the streets that none of his people should be so bold on pain of hanging as to take up quarters in the house of any burgher against his will or to use any reproach whatever or do the least displeasure to any at sight of the public joy the english had retired to the bastille where the constable was disposed to besiege them my lord said the burghers to him they will surrender do not reject their offer it is so far a fine thing enough to have thus recovered paris often on the contrary many constables and many marshals have been driven out of it take contentedly what god hath granted you the burghers prediction was not unverified the english sallied out of the bastille by the gate which opened on the fields and went and took boat in the rear of the louvre next day abundance of provisions arrived in paris and the gates were opened to the country folks the populace freely manifested their joy at being rid of the english it was plain to see was the saying that they were not in france to remain not one of them had been seen to sow a field with corn or build a house they destroyed their quarters without thought of repairing them they had not restored peradventure a single fireplace there was only their regent the duke of bedford who was fond of building and making poor people work he would have liked peace but the nature of those english is to be always at war with their neighbors and accordingly they all made a bad end thank god there have already died in france more than seventy thousand of them up to the taking of paris by the constable the duke of burgundy had kept himself in reserve and had maintained a tacit neutrality towards england he had merely been making without noisy demonstration preparations for an enterprise in which he as count of flanders was very much interested the success of richemont inspired him with a hope and perhaps with a jealous desire of showing his power and his patriotism as a frenchman by making war in his turn upon the english from whom he had by the treaty of arras effected only a pacific separation in june fourteen thirty six he went and besieged calais this was attacking england at one of the points she was bent on defending most obstinately 
Philip had reckoned on the energetic cooperation of the cities of Flanders, and at the first blush the Flemings did display a strong inclination to support him in his enterprise. When the English, they said, know that my lords of Ghent are on the way to attack them, with all their might, they will not await us. They will leave the city and flee away to England. Neither the Flemings nor Philip had correctly estimated the importance which was attached in London to the possession of Calais. When the Duke of Gloucester, Lord Protector of England, found this possession threatened, he sent a herald to defy the Duke of Burgundy, and declared to him that, if he did not wait for battle beneath the walls of Calais, Humphrey of Gloucester would go after him even into his own dominions. "'Tell your lord that he will not need to take so much trouble, and that he will find me here,' answered Philip proudly. His pride was overconfident. Whether it were only a people's fickleness or intelligent appreciation of their own commercial interests in their relations with England, the Flemings grew speedily disgusted with the siege of Calais, complained of the tardiness and arrival of the fleet, which Philip had dispatched thither to close the port against English vessels, and after having suffered several reverses by sorties of the English garrison, they ended by retiring with such precipitation that they abandoned part of their supplies and artillery. Philip, according to the expression of Monsieur Henri Martin, was reduced to covering their retreat with his cavalry, and then he went away sorrowfully to Lille, to advise about the means of defending his Flemish lordships, exposed to the reprisals of the English. Thus the fortune of Burgundy was tottering, whilst that of France was recovering itself. The constable's easy occupation of Paris led the majority of the small places in the neighborhood, Saint-Denis, Chevreuse, Marcoussis, and Montherry to decide either upon spontaneous surrender, or allowing themselves to be taken after no great resistance. Charles the Seventh, on his way through France to Lyon, in Dauphiny, Languedoc, Auvergne, and along the Loire, recovered several other towns, for instance, Chateau Landon, Nemours, and Charny. He laid siege in person to Montereau, an important military post with which a recent and sinister reminiscence was connected. A great change now made itself apparent in the king's behavior and disposition. He showed activity and vigilance, and was ready to expose himself without any care for fatigue or danger. On the day of the assault, 10th of October, 1437, he went down into the trenches, remained there in water up to his waist, mounted the scaling-ladder sword in hand, and was one of the first assailants who penetrated over the top of the walls right into the place. After the surrender of the castle as well as the town of Montereau, he marched on Paris, and made his solemn re-entry there on the 12th of November, 1437, for the first time since, in 1418, Tanegui Duchatel had carried him away, whilst still a child, wrapped in his bedclothes. Charles was received and entertained as became a recovered and a victorious king, but he passed only three weeks there, and went away once more, on the 3rd of December, to go and resume at Orléans first, and then at Bourges, the serious cares of government. It is said to have been at this royal entry into Paris that Agnes Sorel, or Soreau, who was soon to have the name of Queen of Beauty, and to assume in French history an almost glorious, though illegitimate, position, appeared with brilliancy in the train of the Queen, Mary of Anjou, to whom the king had appointed her a maid of honour. It is a question whether she did not even then exercise over Charles the Seventh that influence, serviceable alike to the honour of the king and of France, which was to inspire Francis I, a century later, with this gallant quatrain. 
If to win back poor captive France be aught, More honour, gentle Agnes, is thy weed, Than e'er was due to deeds of virtue wrought, By cloistered nun or pious hermit breed. It is worth while, perhaps, to remark that in 1437 Agnes Sorrel was already twenty-seven. One of the best informed, most impartial, and most sensible historians of that epoch, James de Clerc, merely says on this subject, King Charles, before he had peace with Duke Philip of Burgundy, led a right holy life and said his canonical hours. But after peace was made with the Duke, though the King continued to serve God, he joined himself unto a young woman who was afterwards called Fair Agnes. Nothing is gained by ignoring good even when it is found in company with evil, and there is no intention here of disputing the share of influence exercised by Agnes Sorrel upon Charles the Seventh's regeneration in politics, and war, after the Treaty of Arras. Nevertheless, in spite of the king's successes at Montereau, and during his passage through central and northern France, the condition of the country was still so bad in 1440, the disorder was so great, and the king so powerless to apply a remedy, that Richemont, disconsolate, was tempted to rid and disburden himself from the government of France and between the rivers, Seine and Loire, no doubt, and to go or send to the king for that purpose. But one day the prior of the Carthusians at Paris called on the constable and found him in his private chapel. "'What need you, fair father?' asked Richemont. The prior answered that he wished to speak with my lord the constable. Richemont replied that it was he himself. "'Pardon me, my lord,' said the prior, "'I did not know you.' I wish to speak to you, if you please. Gladly, said Richemont. Well, my lord, you yesterday held counsel and considered about disburdening yourself from the government and office you hold hereabouts. How know you that? Who told you? My lord, I do not know it through any person of your counsel, and do not put yourself out to learn who told me, for it was one of my brethren. My lord, do not do this thing, and be not troubled, for God will help you. Ah, fair father, how can that be? The king has no mind to aid me or grant me men or money, and the men-at-arms hate me because I have justice done on them, and they have no mind to obey me. My lord, they will do what you desire, and the king will give you orders to go and lay siege to Mio, and will send you men and money. Ah, fair father, Mio is so strong. How can it be done? The king of England was there for nine months before it. My lord, be not you troubled. You will not be there so long. Keep having good hope in God, and he will help you. Be ever humble, and grow not proud. You will take no ere long. Your men will grow proud. They will then have somewhat to suffer. But you will come out of it to your honor. The good prior was right. Mio was taken, and when the constable went to tell the news at Paris, the king made him great cheer. There was a continuance of war to the north of the Loire, and amidst many alternations of success and reverses the national cause made great way there. Charles resolved, in 1442, to undertake an expedition to the south of the Loire, in Aquitaine, where the English were still dominant, and he was successful. He took from the English Tartas, Saint-Sever, Mermand, Laureau, Blay, and Bourg-sur-Mer. Their ally, Count John d'Armagnac, submitted to the King of France. These successes cost Charles the Seventh the brave Lahire, who died at Montauban of his wounds. On returning to Normandy, where he had left Dunois, Charles, in 1443, conducted a prosperous campaign there. The English leaders were getting weary of a war without any definite issue, and they had proposals made to Charles for a truce, 
accompanied with a demand on the part of their young king, Henry the Seventh, for the hand of a French princess, Margaret of Anjou, daughter of King Rena, who wore the three crowns of Naples, Sicily, and Jerusalem, without possessing any one of the kingdoms. The truce and the marriage were concluded at Tours in 1444. Neither of the arrangements was popular in England. The English people, who had only a far-off touch of suffering from the war, considered that their government made too many concessions to France. In France, too, there was some murmuring. The king, it was said, did not press his advantage with sufficient vigor. Everybody was in a hurry to see all Aquitaine recovered. But a joy that was boundless and impossible to describe, says Thomas Bazin, the most intelligent of the contemporary historians, spread abroad through the whole population of the Gauls. Having been a prey for so long to incessant terrors, and shut up within the walls of their towns like convicts in a prison, they rejoiced like people restored to freedom after a long and bitter slavery. Companies of both sexes were seen going forth into the country and visiting temples or oratories dedicated to the saints, to pay the vows which they had made in their distress. One fact especially was admirable, and the work of God himself. Before the truce so violent had been the hatred between the two sides, both men-at-arms and people, that none, whether soldier or burgher, could, without risk to life, go out and pass from one place to another, unless under the protection of a safe conduct. But so soon as the truce was proclaimed, every one went and came at pleasure, in full liberty and security, whether in the same district or in districts under divided rule, and even those who, before the proclamation of the truce, seemed to take no pleasure in anything but a savage outpouring of human blood, now took delight in the sweets of peace, and passed the days in holiday-making and dancing with enemies, who but lately had been as bloodthirsty as themselves. End of chapter 24, part 8